Welcome to Is This Real Life? A Bravo podcast that relates our favorite shows to our own lives and the world around us. I'm your host, Mandy Slutsker. Let's get to it. Hi, everyone. I am recording this early because I leave for LA tomorrow, and I haven't packed yet because I don't want Stasi, my dog, to see my suitcase. Does anyone else play these like psychological games with their pets? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm going to drop her off at the sitter, and then I'm going to pack, and then rush to the airport, because that makes sense. <laughs> She gets really upset when she sees a suitcase. She's not sure if I'm going, if she's coming along. It just confuses her. So I figured I would just wait until she is gone to pack. Um, today, I'm going to do a solo recap of the Salt Lake City Reunion Part 2, Real Housewives of New Jersey and Summer House. And then after that, we're going to do a brief check-in with my dad and my stepmom, Joyce, about their first year of marriage, some funny takes my dad has talking about animals, and then we talk a little bit about his experience in Russia when he tried to leave and a relationship he had with a friend who that I actually met um, when I went to Russia. So my father has not returned to Russia since he left in 1979. But I went in 2017 for work-related reasons. I was invited to a UN ministerial conference on tuberculosis. And I met up with this person my dad used to know, and we we talk a bit about about that story. So I'll try to post some pictures on my Instagram of that experience. It was a wild experience, and um, during that meeting, I ended up being in the same room as Vladimir Putin, who addressed all of the ministers of health that were there, and it was absolutely crazy to to say the least um of course you know my dad and i talk regularly especially about what's happening in in ukraine and our hearts are broken and you know i keep donating to different refugee groups and organizations uh but i encourage you all to do the same if you can you know where my heart is with all of that all right um okay hard pivot <laughs> Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, talking about people that hold on to a grudge. Um, So Meredith, during this episode, is slowly building her case that she was a good friend to Lisa and had Lisa's back, despite what Lisa has been saying. And it really shows her lawyer and legal training. She's really good at it. I mean, she's getting Lisa to admit, yes, at this point, you were a good friend. Yes, at this point, you were a good friend, you know. And I get that Lisa is to blame for the misunderstanding surrounding Meredith's father's memorial. However, I feel like Whitney and Heather are getting a pass for going so hard after Meredith on this. I don't know why. Like, they didn't have to make it that big of a deal. And what I want to know and what I'm hoping to hear from part three is who was the first to speculate that Meredith had something to do with Jen's arrest? Because whoever set the wheels in motion for that is responsible for the pain that Meredith felt. And 
everyone that went along with that storyline and that narrative is responsible for the pain that Meredith felt. And I feel like because she had just seen the episode where Lisa went on a tirade against her, she's very singularly focused on Lisa's betrayal of her. But I feel like she's overlooking Whitney in particular, how Whitney went after her. So it's interesting watching Lisa try to speak to Meredith at all of the breaks. Meredith clearly does not want to hear her excuses. And it seems like Lisa is used to wearing people down with her apologies. She just talks and talks and talks to the point where people just like give in to whatever she's saying because they don't want to deal with her anymore. But it's not working anymore with Meredith. And it's wild that Lisa is blaming production for this hot mic moment. She knows that there are cameras there and that they film things and that if something like this happens, of course they're going to use it. But what's even more wild is watching Lisa try to make small talk and act like everything is fine in the other moment. Like it's, it's so, so creepy and weird. When they all get back from the break to sit down and Jen Shah is carrying her gloves, she's like, the gloves are making another appearance. <laughs> Just like, I can't. I, I do a terrible, Lisa. I do a terrible impression of all of them. So then they really get into Mary M. Cosby. And it's awkward because Mary's not there to defend herself, but also it's Mary's fault Mary's not there. So the whole thing is weird. Um, You know, it comes out that she sends terrible, mean texts to everyone. And then they go around and talk about whether or not they believe her church is a cult. Meredith doesn't think there's evidence for it. Whitney didn't think so, but now she questions it. And Jen, with the line of the night, (laughs) I think every church is a cult to some extent. Uh, But she does think that the church worships Mary as if Mary is God. And Whitney points out later that during that Mother's Day tribute, which was only to Mary, one of the women said, you are the facsimile of God, meaning an exact replica. And I don't know. I don't know what I think, but it is um, it is interesting that she does seem to use the fear of God to manipulate people into getting what she wants. And then they spend a lot of time talking about Cameron, who Lisa brought on camera. And, you know, going back, Cameron did say, word for word, they'll beat you down until they get what they want, speaking about Mary and Robert Sr. And Lisa asks, is that why you mortgaged your house? And Cameron says, that's exactly why I mortgaged my house. So it turns out that Lisa had set off camera and Mary had confirmed that he didn't give her $300,000. It was more like 10% of that, which would be 30000 Still a lot of money. For me, it's not about the amount of money he had. It's what he had to do in order to give that money and what that money was meant to go to. And so if he had to mortgage his house, which he did say he did on camera, I mean, I believe him because he's saying it. And I, I believe people when they say things unless I find a reason not to. And I just feel like that's really horrible. (laughs) And I don't understand how anyone, like a faith leader or anyone, could accept money that you knew was needed for something else, like a mortgage. So, you know, Heather does point out that the Mormon church is possibly a cult as well. I know a lot of people have been saying, 
you know, like how all these Mormons are going after Mary, but I don't think any of them other than Lisa are defending the church. I think they agree that there are cult-like similarities. Um, So it turns out that we all know Cameron died. He passed from a brain tumor, but Lisa was very odd in how she talked about it. She said he had surgery and it was successful, but then she didn't finish the sentence to explain like it was successful or we thought it went well, but then things took a turn. Anyways, um, there was this weird argument whether or not Cameron was on the board of Foster Care Utah and Lisa actually was correct with this, that he wasn't on the board, but he was on his way to being a board member. And that's what Foster Care Utah actually said when he died. But I think they're all just trying to nitpick and find Lisa uh, to be factually incorrect because I think that she has been lying a lot. So they're trying to sometimes look for lies when I don't really think they're there. Um What I got a little bit confused by is throughout this entire time, everyone keeps saying, why are we talking about this? Like, why are we talking about Cameron? You know, Andy, can I ask, why are we why are we so interested in Mary's church? It's like, I don't know, guys, you talked about it the entire season. And now you're wondering, why are we discussing this at the reunion where we talk about the season? (laughs) Um, the one thing that I really find the most troubling, other than Cameron saying that he mortgaged his home to give money to Mary's church, is that, you know, if there's a support group for ex-members of something, that always seems to be an indication that maybe not everything is is great. And uh, like a good example of Scientology, you know, people who are in the church of Scientology may say that they really enjoy it and they get so many benefits of being part of that community and they feel supported and loved and cared for. But people who leave that church experience harassment and stalking and, you know, very like a lot of negative consequences. And so what I feel like is the true mark of a cult is if you're not able to leave or if there are really negative consequences of you leaving. So I don't know what that means for for Mary and her church. I don't really like the term cult because I don't know, I don't understand all of the things that make something a cult, but it definitely seems like there are things that are not great about how she goes about practicing. Um, and she, you know, but she also wasn't there to defend herself. And I really, really, really wish she was. And I wonder if she just didn't want things to come out that she had potentially had an affair with uh, Cameron um, many years ago when when he was younger. Um, but then the rest of the episode is really the Meredith versus Lisa show. And it was painful to watch, guys. Like, I don't even know if I enjoyed it. I thought it was so cringy and painful. Like, it, to watch Lisa, a grown woman, not be able to articulate her feelings and give a heartfelt apology, it felt like she was almost like a a robot that was like malf 
functioning. Like she just couldn't. She was trying to string together words to make it sound like she had empathy, but she, I think she really lacks it. And I don't think she's necessarily a bad person. I just think she, maybe she was born lacking some empathy. And I think a lot of these women do, um, which is why we watch them on TV because they are interesting. But it's crazy that she was thrown into this rage and her reasoning where she just said all these terrible things about her so-called best friend Meredith was because she was upset that Meredith said Meredith was offended by some stuff Lisa said. Like, I'm offended. And she was like, well, I feel like every time I try to express my feelings, they're offensive and I can't have my feelings. But I just, none of this makes sense. I don't think anyone should ever go on a tirade like that. If you have that in you, like you have something that needs to be dealt with. Like if you have that much rage that has built up for so long and it's about someone who you care about, I don't know, guys. I don't know. (laughs) That being said, I love Lisa on the show and I don't want to see her go anywhere. It's just... You know, I, I, I empathize with Meredith. I just don't understand how this would trigger that kind of tirade. I don't get it. Um, and Meredith says it goes all the way back to the Shabbat dinner in the beginning of the season when her father had passed. And Meredith said that she called Lisa to say he was dying. Three days passed. Lisa didn't call her. Then her father died. Then two days passed after her father died, and she's the one that picked up the phone and called Lisa. And then after this, they had the Shabbat dinner. And during that time, Lisa kept bringing up the situation with Jen Shaw. And it's clear that, you know, this is days after Meredith lost her father. I get that they're filming a TV show, but... I think Lisa puts so much weight in the fact that they're filming a TV show and she's so in that universe that she couldn't take a step out to say like, wow, I've got this friend who just lost her dad and maybe I should be there for her for a moment rather than trying to move the story along and trying to make it so Jen and Meredith are okay and push Meredith uh, when she's clearly uh, vulnerable. And you know, this is, oh, Lisa kept saying she was there for Meredith, but you don't get to say what you did. Like, it's up to Meredith to say whether or not she felt that Lisa was there for her. And I really just feel for Meredith in this moment because, you know, after my mom died, when you know, when people did kind things for me, I really appreciated it. And I remember to this day, every act of kindness that someone did. I had a friend of mine just show up with frozen veggie burritos and was like, I was staying at my apartment had burned down. I had no place to, I was staying with a friend and she was like, here's some lunch and here are the instructions for reheating. And so I don't really know what to say, but here's some food and something that you could really use. And that meant so much to me. You know, I had other friends that, you know, started, one of them started calling me every week to see how I was doing. But Years later, when we got into a, a conversation, an argument about something, she threw it back in my face. And 
I've never been able to to forgive that because it's like if you do something for me that's kind during a time of of vulnerability and grief, don't try and like tell me how great you were. That's when that's not the topic at hand. So I really feel like it really irked me when Lisa was like, I was there for her. I was there for her. Like You don't get to say whether or not you were there for her. She gets to decide how it made her feel. So I don't know. I mean, Lisa's upset that Meredith can be friends with everyone, but Lisa has stipulations on who she can be friends with. And I get that, but why not just have an actual conversation stating just that to Meredith rather than holding everything inside and then having this insane outburst. And the outburst happened after Meredith had texted her, you know, saying, I'm not doing well. I'm going through a really, really rough time and I need a friend. And to think that just weeks later, this is when the hot mic moment happened. Ugh. Um, that being said, I am very here for watching what happens to Lisa and Meredith's friendship. I am I'm interested in it. More because I feel like it's a sociological experiment between two people, one of whom is unable to feel any empathy. <laughs> and then it ends with Andy asking about what Meredith said at the season finale when she threatened to expose who was dating who. And, you know, she says they know who they are and they know what they've done. And I think it is a direct dig at Jennifer Shaw. And Meredith and Jen deny that they dated the same man, but I just, I think they did. <laughs> I do. I do. Jen Shaw is getting off scot-free at this reunion. I really hope he rakes her over the coals at the next reunion because she is indicted for some very, very serious federal crimes, and they're spending all of their time grilling the, you know, Mary, who's not there, and then Lisa, who had this hot mic moment and should have definitely been grilled. But like, come on, guys. <laughs> it's wild that the meat of the season was not about the woman who is indicted by Homeland like, Security in the Southern District of New York. Okay, taking a trip over to the Jersey Shore. So they start out at that pink party at Melissa's house. And Teresa insists that Jen is not a bad person, despite calling her brother, Joe Corka, a crook. (laughs) I don't know. Everything with Teresa is a double standard. And it would be so exhausting to be friends with her and to be in a family with her. I, I, everyone that has to engage with her as the patience of a saint. Um, they all head back up north to northern Jersey, and we get to see these little scenes kind of of people in their home life. We see Margaret go to lunch with her mother, Marge Sr., and they discuss that someone's been leaking stuff about Lewis, and the most recent leak is that he hit his ex-fiance in front of her children. I don't know if I remember hearing that story. That is really, really bad. I, I, I don't know. I think I didn't follow a lot of the Jersey drama closely while it was happening while they were filming. So watching it back does feel like I'm learning a lot in, in current time. 
so it's it's interesting. It's almost like I have no spoilers because I don't really know um, all that stuff. But so we get to see Dolores uh, with her parents, and she tells them that her and David broke up, and they're upset because they love David. You guys all know I love David. Um, I don't buy all of Dolores's explanations about why her and David broke up, but I get that she can't break the fourth wall and say that he just wasn't comfortable filming and his schedule didn't really allow for it and that that's a huge part of her life. That's sort of what I was gathering from from their relationship because she made it sound like David doesn't want a life outside of work, but I I don't think that was it because he had relationships with all of her family and I think he was willing to hang out outside of work, it just not maybe with cameras around. And she made it sound like he didn't come looking for her when he moved or when she moved to the townhouse. But then later she was saying, well, I spoke to him every day for five years. So what, what, like, were you calling him every day? Was he never calling you? If you spoke every day, what do you mean? He just like didn't come looking for you. I don't know. Uh, But then we see him or we hear that later in the episode, he's helping her family out when her mom's having heart issues. And it turns out that her mom needs a triple bypass. Uh, He's with them at the hospital. And guys, I will die on this hill defending Dr. David. I think he's a stand up guy. And I don't like all of the hate that he gets by the crazy Jersey stands on Twitter. Okay. Moving on, <laughs> we see the new property that uh, the Gorgas bought. They're flipping it. They buy sh- apparently a shitty house in a nice neighborhood. And I don't know, doesn't look fun to me. <laughs> it's like actually my idea of a nightmare is going to a house that is being remodeled and running into a beehive. Like that is literally, it just sounds like the one of the worst things. I, I'm so afraid of bees. I don't even want to get into how scared I am of them. I don't even like seeing black and yellow together in outfits. It reminds me of, whew, I'm still afraid of those murder hornets. Do you guys remember that when that all happened in like the beginning of 2020 and we're like a pandemic, murder hornets, like uh, I am still, I'm like prepping for the day that they make it across the country to DC. Like I will never leave my apartment. <laughs> um. Okay, so then we really get to see what's going on with Jennifer Aiden and her family. And for all the obnoxious things that she does, she is one of the most compelling characters we see on camera. She just comes alive, is dynamic. I feel for her. Her family scenes are some of the best scenes in in Jersey and across all the franchises. You know, we see her talking to her daughter, Gabby, and it turns out that Bill and Jennifer told their older children about the affair. And it just, my heart broke because she says, I've had a lot of time to be okay with it, but I've not had a lot of time for you to be okay with it. And I'm struggling with it because I never meant for you guys to find out. And she's navigating this the best she can. It's a lot for Gabby, a 14-year-old, to process and to process on camera and to know that it's going to show months later from now and that other kids at school, their parents watch the show, maybe they watch the show. It's very, um, it's, there's a lot. And Jennifer's worried about telling her mom. And all of this breaks my heart because 
no reason. Like, no- of course, Jennifer didn't tell anyone that was close to her when Bill cheated on her. One, she felt shame. And two, everyone around her would make her feel shame. The fact that her mom, she said, wouldn't be upset with Bill because men will be men, but that her mom is more upset about Margaret for bringing this out in the open it speaks volumes. And I feel like Jennifer doesn't have someone she can really confide in other than her husband. And then when it's about her husband, who she's supposed to talk to. And it's interesting to see that Jennifer's starting to get more upset with Bill. And she's pissed that the women all seem to love Bill, all of the other housewives, and they just seem to have an issue with her. But She's pissed that he didn't defend her last week in that fight with Melissa. He, She said he stood there and he said nothing. And for 10 years, I put him on a fucking pedestal. He's betrayed me once. And, you know, now he is doing it again. So Dolores is over and they're kickboxing with Gabby, the daughter. And Dolores is the perfect person to talk to Jennifer about this because she also was cheated on when she was nine months pregnant. And you know, she's asking all the right questions, the the questions I want to hear Jennifer answer. And she's, you know, saying, are you still mad at Bill? And, you know, Jennifer says she never really processed it because when she decided she was going to forgive him, she just needed to move on. And I I get that. Like, she had a newborn, you know, she just gave birth. Uh, She has other, it was like her fourth kid, you know, there's four kids at home, one's a newborn. That's a, a wild situation to be in. And so she probably was like in survival mode. And then she just stuck with it because it maybe it was working. And now she's forced to deal with it. But she's never processed it. And I really hope she gets a chance to to talk with Bill about it, but also to go to therapy and to talk it all out because that will help her heal. And I feel like she's resistant to things like that, but I really, I think it could help her. Um, <clears throat> Dolores points out that maybe the reason Jennifer is always like hurt by the other women on the show is because she's hurt over what happened. And, you know, when, and Jen wonders, is it okay for her to change her mind now? She said she was okay with the affair. She was upset, but she was going to accept that it happened and stay with Bill and move on. But she's like, what if I haven't moved on? Like, what if I'm upset again? And, you know, we'll see what happens when, when she talks to Bill. And then the episode ends with all the guys uh, out at a boys' night and the drama starting to impact them. And I've wondered when this would happen. Like, how far would it have to go for them to stop being all broy and actually, you know, get upset? And it's funny, they're all in this text chain <laughs> and everyone's saying, like, they're excited to see Bill even after this huge fight that all their wives were in. And Joe Gogor writes, fuck you, Bill. <laughs> I just, I mean, they want Bill to admit that what his wife did was wrong, but I don't know which thing they want him to admit she did was wrong. Is it wrong that she was digging around on Evan? Is it wrong that she called the Gorgas, you know, crooks? Like, which thing is it? And um, it's probably all of it. Also, sidebar, whenever Frank Catania orders a green apple martini, like, I just love it. I absolutely love it. I love someone who is just very authentically themselves. And and he definitely is that. 
Also, before Bill even shows up, they're all gossiping about Lewis and whether or not he hit his ex. And Tiki Barber, of all people, brings it up. Let me tell you. I was having a conversation with my father, and I mentioned that Tiki Barber, the former football player, was part of this big drama. (laughs) You wouldn't believe me. I mean... Give Tiki, uh, I don't know, they don't hold anything in Jersey, but he's really, he's pulling his weight. Tracy needs to to learn from him. So they kind of all agree before Bill gets there that they should really support him because of what he's quote unquote going through. Yeah, he's caught, was caught cheating or everyone found out about him cheating. So they have to side with the cheater, of course, because it's the man. And... um. But then when he shows up, they kind of change their tune and they say, you know, your wife is out of control. She crossed the line. Bill points out correctly, well, didn't Margaret cross the line when she outed the affair? And and I, she probably did. You know, the people are starting to cross lines, you know, right and left. Um, but then Bill, he says, Jen didn't go digging for anyone's dirt. And Evan points out that that she did. And Bill's like, well, she's just nosy. And he's he's really excusing. And the behavior. And I think Evan is just over it. He pushes back and Bill leaves and Evan's like, fine, get lost. (laughs) Just like, finally, like we're seeing something from Evan, you know, Tiki Barber and Evan, man, they're just, they're giving us these men. And I don't like it on the other franchises when they have all the guys hang out because it doesn't feel like they're actually friends. But these guys, you can tell that they hang out all the time when the cameras are there, when the cameras aren't there, and that they have uh, some sort of bond. And I find it charming in a way that I don't on any of the other franchises. So speaking of charming, let's move on to Summer House. So it starts out with Kyle's birthday, and he's doing that speech where he's telling everyone to stop questioning him and Amanda's relationship because they're about to get married, and he wants to quiet the peanut gallery. But Amanda points out it's not the right place, <laughs> and not everyone there has any idea what he's talking about because it's their actual friends, not just all the friends on the show. And so they're like, "Why? what is he saying? And you know, Amanda's definitely upset, rightly so, and Kyle is thinking that Amanda's friends were telling her to call off the wedding. But then Maya clarifies that, you know what, they were just checking on her. They want her to be happy. And Maya can relate because she was in a long engagement that ended up getting called off. She like understands that that is a very big deal. And, you know, Kyle says he doesn't mind the questioning around making the relationship better, but he doesn't want questioning around calling off the wedding. I don't know. His behavior has been really tough to both him and Amanda. It's just kind of tough to swallow. So speaking of other relationships that I don't fully comprehend, uh, Paige texted Craig that week about how she felt about him and said that he was on the next plane to New York. So we get this scene in her apartment and they seem really cute. They seem really happy with each other, but she wants to define where they are in the relationship. And Craig says, (laughs) it's really simple. We're always going to be jealous of each other. It's not worth, 
saying we're completely exclusive because I think that would put too much stress on it and I don't think it would last at this moment. So he's saying in one breath that we're going to be jealous of each other, seeing other people, but we should still see other people. (laughs) Just the whole thing just doesn't make sense to me. He seems he says he wants to keep hanging out more and more until they get to a point where it would be inappropriate for them to be with other people. And Paige says that that's how she feels, too. But Paige started to cut off things with Andrea. She won't even flirt with him anymore, let alone make out with him. And I don't know what Craig's running around doing. I mean, it seems like they're really happy now. I'm sure there's a lot more to it, like being two people who are on reality shows, who live in different cities, who are trying to figure out whether or not they can make something real happen. And I think... Craig is someone that is quite loyal and he doesn't, you know, I don't, I don't think he's ever cheated on a girl. He's been pretty clear about that and how he feels about that. So when he does fully commit, he fully commits, but it feels like he's trying to push this as far as it can go. But maybe, maybe they're just trying to work out what a relationship a committed relationship between the two of them would look like before they jump two feet in. So I can see both sides, but I don't know. When he said, like, it's really simple. It's, like, not simple at all. Why are you... (laughs) We're going to be jealous, but we shouldn't be exclusive. (laughs) Uh, Other things that don't make sense. Uh, So Austin comes to visit for Lindsay's 35th birthday party, and it's just this huge battle between Sierra and Lindsay over Austin, and it's painful, painful to watch, especially as a woman where I'm like, first of all, no man, whether it's Austin or a guy who's amazing stand up like Prince Harry type is worth behaving like that over. You know, Lindsay assumes that Austin's going to stay in her room and Sierra is like, you can sleep anywhere but in her room. Like, the whole thing at both of them look really pathetic. Luke, uh, love Luke. He asks like, oh, are you guys dating to Sierra uh, about Austin? And, you know, she's like, no. And then he's like, well, then why does it matter where he sleeps? Amanda's, you know, trying to defend Sierra. Like, you know, it would be uncomfortable. And Luke's like, was it not uncomfortable when when I was on vacation in Vermont and Sierra was hooking up with Austin? It wasn't an issue that you were hooking up in front of me. Like, you called me a fuckboy, but he's not. And (laughs) applause. Applause for Luke for rightly calling out the hypocrisy. And while I very much appreciated Paige's boys don't have a lot of double standards, so you can live with that one line, I don't appreciate it for Luke. (laughs) In a different scenario, maybe. But, you know, Sierra was really, really nasty to Luke last summer. And they tried to just tarnish his character, calling him a fuckboy, all this stuff, and no one has been worse on camera with all of this stuff than Austin from Southern Charm. We continuously see he's like flirting with Sierra, calling her fucking Celine Dion. <laughs> it's like, why does that game even work? Like, if a guy told me I look like Celine Dion, even if I did, like, what the hell? Like, that's not... <laughs> Oh, Luke is so right. And I'm glad that most of the other castmates seem to see that now. 
I think. So I don't know. I think Lindsay and Sierra both come across as insecure and pathetic. And, you know, the first night, of course, Austin's making it with Sierra, but then he sleeps in Andrea's room. And then the next night, he, like, makes out with Lindsay at the party. By the way, I loved the theme, Twisted Fairy Tale. It was so fun. Their costumes were incredible. Loved the makeup. We saw Carl. He had a girl that he's seen come visit. Not really paying too much attention to that because they're not together anymore, and I'm not that invested, but she looked very cute as Alice in Wonderland. And uh, we see Danielle trying to hook Maya up with a cute boy. And I really wanted to see her go back and talk to him. Um, So maybe we'll see that a little bit next week. And it sounds like Lindsay has a complete breakdown. Sierra and Danielle fight. And it's really going down at the summer house. (laughs) Well, that is my solo recap uh, this week. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, if you like the podcast, give it a five-star rating and leave a kind review. If you want to give me some feedback, my DMs are open. You can reach me at Mandy Slutsker on Twitter or Instagram. And I really hope you guys enjoy this conversation with my dad and Joyce. Um, Love to know what you guys think about it. We're going to take a quick break, and then we will be back with uh, the new Mr. and Mrs. Slutsker. So I am back with my dad, Ilya, and my stepmom, Joyce, who, if you guys have been listening to the podcast for a while, I think they made their podcast debut before they got married. So they've been married now for almost more than a year and a half, I think. Mm -hmm. How has it been, guys? It's been going well. (laughs) We're still on the honeymoon. Yeah, the honeymoon is going on and it's getting <laughs> the stronger and the stronger. We don't plan on ending it. <laughs> we plan to be on, on the honeymoon for the next about uh, the 25 years. Why not? Until we get into the mid the 90s. Mm-hmm. And then so what? And then we'll ride it to sunset. <laughs> Still on the honeymoon. <laughs> Joyce, this is your first marriage. So what is, like, what are you enjoying about being married? Two things come to my mind. The first one is he's my best friend. And I've had a lot of really best friends throughout my life. But it's great when your best friend is your husband. And it's socially really fun. It's fun to be a couple and be out with other couples. It just feels really natural. Used to feel, I got used to it, but it would always feel a little awkward being the single person with a lot of married couples. My friends were always very good and accepting, but I'd say that's one of the really kind of cool things about being a couple. And dad, are you happy to be married again? I know you told me when you were going to propose to Joyce that you didn't just want a girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's right. That's what you wanted for me, and I wanted more. <laughs> so it just it just this shows the difference in ages and values, I guess. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, I mean that's what you get with the young the generation these days. Just the casual relationships. No, we want something more the meaningful, Mandy. So it's going well. 
You know, I can say the same thing. She's my the best friend and it just changed my life. Uh-huh. He's been my counselor this week. Oh, what's been going on? Well, I've just had some self-confidence issues in my work and having a good friend that kind of reminds me where my gifts are, where my strengths are, how I shouldn't discount my value. It's a huge thing in your life to have somebody support you that much. Yeah. Everyone should be. Dad, you're a good cheerleader. You like tell everyone how amazing everything they do is and you're, and you're really good at it. No, I, I don't think I'm a cheerleader. I'm just being the honest man. But what I find with the, with a lot of the women, I think in general, I cannot say it for all women, but a lot of them, they have this um, um, the desire to avoid the conflict and being nice and the accommodating. And as a result, I think they allow more aggressive people to walk over them you know, I see that in a Joyce, and I just won't let it happen. So I want her to stand for herself. She has a lot of the value. She doesn't need to, you know, do things because she thinks that's a nice way to handle it. So I think that's where I, I come and probably provide some value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you cheer her on in her artwork. She started to draw again. <laughs> oh, that was beautiful. That was beautiful work. I mean, I well, Joyce, explain to me what inspired you to to start drawing again. I know that you do a lot of embroidery work and you sew and things like that and you knit, but drawing. Well, the year before I met your dad, I joined some club type things to keep me occupied and to go out and try and meet some new people because my best friend had died. And so here I was learning how to paint with um, acrylics. And to be a painter, you have to also learn how to draw. So I did it for quite a while. And then I left the drawing, did some other things, did some crocheting, did some sewing. And what led me back to the pen and pencil was the picture of Jenna and the baby. Oh, my sister-in-law, yeah. Yes, it was a mother with their arms around that little baby, and the baby's so adorable, and I thought, i got to try and draw this. But because I hadn't drawn for two years, it was horrific, (laughs) and it was traumatic. It was not horrific. But I shared it with my best friend, (laughs) and he laughed. No, it was beautiful, except she just used the the pencil, and uh, there's no the color in the picture, just the paper and pencil, and she put a focus on the the mouth, the teeth, and eyes. <laughs> so if you step away from the picture, all you see is eyes and the teeth, <laughs> and it created this strange uh, the impression like. It's a painting of the living dead. You know, <laughs> the monsters, you know, that walk around. Just you need to add those those the arms. I don't think I can draw arms coming forward. forward. I don't know. <laughs> picture. So I just pointed it out. I mean, but it was a great picture. It resembled. <laughs> no, it was good. So it's not always cheerleading. Sometimes he's honest and straightforward and tells you 
that is really not working. <laughs> no, I didn't say. And you actually worked on You said it. all I see are then, eyes and teeth. <laughs> right. But then you, you worked on it. You improved it. You added the hair. At least I could see hair. Yeah. Then it didn't look like 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 a zombie anymore. Now it looked more like like a human. Because uh-huh. you can see hair. If you see hair, it's already... There is a chance that it will work. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. I think that's so great. It is fun. It's fun to entertain each other, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you really are a good, like, you know, I don't know if cheerleader is the right word. or And it's not just for Joyce. It's for me. It's for my brother. You know, you're always saying, like, how smart he is. And, and he needs it, you know? I think not everyone has the level of confidence that they that they well, should. What can I do? He's the smart kid. You know that. He's always been. Yeah. It's, you know, he's the professional in the math. That's his background. So he's quite a smart kid. And you too. So I can't, you know, lie. <laughs> Say the truth. It's not really being a cheerleader. Just being honest. Mm-hmm. In your first year of marriage, have you guys had any arguments? Never. Stop. Come on. No, no. I or mean, I'm telling you, any I've known conflict? you three years. I'm trying to think, and I can't remember. Can you remember any conflicts you had? The disagreements, the confrontations, the discussions. We keep waiting for it to happen because everybody says In the beginning, it will. We waited, but she's so non, non-aggressive that I don't know what even to fight about. I mean, maybe, you know, if you can come up with an idea, maybe we'll give it a chance. But <laughs> so far, we, we, we couldn't find anything worth fighting about. We, we, well, we fundamentally have a lot of, we have the same views. We have the same the values, even though we come from vastly different the backgrounds, different the cultures, different the continents of origin. Still, somehow... Uh, you know, we are totally different by our origin, and yet we have the similar system of the values, the same, you know, attitudes. We have a lot of uh, the similarities in our interests. We have the same views, more or less, in politics. That helps. So it's really very difficult to find a reason to have a disagreement. We don't have a lot of stressors that would create conflict either, and, I don't think. And when we do, I always give up. So, <laughs> Well, you know, I have an example, maybe. I mean, I know it will come as a shock to you, but uh, Jewish decided to replace the cushions on the couch and chairs outside on all and I. Okay. So she ordered from, what's that place? Wayfair. Wayfair. The, the the new uh, uh, the cushions and I can't say that I don't don't like them but my uh, the backside doesn't like them <laughs> I mean the visually they are okay but when you sit on them you can tell the difference so I I, I sort of express those the views to Joyce but that didn't help and I said okay <laughs> We're gonna throw away old ones. So the next time, Mindy, you come, you need to look for a place to sit. I, I don't think you can use the couch anymore. <laughs> Is it really that bad? <laughs> you see, there's now, no conflict. I just go along with whatever she decides. We're sitting on the new 
cushions. I'm saying this is so much more comfortable than the old cushions are. And he is saying, nope, it's not as comfortable as the old cushions. And then I said, the area really needed to be brightened up. Those were faded and they look really old and they look kind of brown, like they've been sunshine to death. And he said he likes the new color and we got blue and yellow and it looks more like a pool area to me. And so all of that was good. And then he said about the backside, not liking it. And then it ended with, but of course, because you like them, we keep them and you win. to put up a fight. So. <laughs> Maybe that's why it works. That's why it works. It's not worth fighting for. <laughs> now, no. most of the people who listen to the podcast that know about you know about your interests in various gadgets that you order on Amazon and your love of wildlife. So what is it about going to a wildlife sanctuary or a zoo or an aquarium that inspires you to send the family a hundred photos with descriptions of everything. <laughs> I know. The primarily it's you. Me? When you were yes. Because every time I see the an animal, it seems like one of your friends. So I have to let you know about that. <laughs> so your friend. It's true. I he mean, he it, always says he sees a turtle. Oh, there's Mandy the turtle that Mandy he loves, loves turtles. turtles. So I do like turtles. This is a fish. He says, oh, Mandy loves fish. She swims with the fishes. She <laughs> swam with sharks. <laughs> well, fish true. and sharks are very different things. Well, there were sharks in the tank. There were at sharks the there, oh, wow. And then, you know, you like uh, uh, the frogs. So I took the pictures of frogs and the snakes because they're all the reptiles or Pretty much every kind of animal is your friend. So I had to let you know I met one of your friends. <laughs> What's your favorite animal? Oh, boy. I guess I like them all. I like the cats, big cats. So this time we saw the cheetah. The bunnies? Well, the bunnies really, I mean, it's it's not an animal. It's like a part of a family. <laughs> bunnies? <It's different>. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I call them the rabbit. Yes. Call him all his life, even now. So the only television he watches is YouTube because it has to be either true history, a true documentary, or something about animals. So we watch the Dodo channel a lot. Yeah. Lots more, of things about the animals channel. on Dodo. Mm-hmm. Rescuing kitties, rescuing dogs. And Unlikely Animal Friends is one of your favorites, but you've yes. seen them all. Yep. Mm-hmm. But you can get them on the YouTube. You can find anything there. <laughs> That's pretty much like the whole world open for you. I don't watch the linear the television anymore. I don't remember the last time that I look at cable or the streaming channels. Mm-hmm. It's one way we're very different. I watch the traditional shows and watch them during the daytime. And then at night, I hand over the remote to him, and he can watch World War II, Dodo. Football. Football. I like football. We enjoy I like some of the history of football. World War II, too. Oi, vey. <laughs> <Jokes>. I mean, 
It's interesting. <laughs> Watching like World War II videos before you go to bed, really, you know, <laughs> relaxing. Special person. Quite you need to try it. You will not have any problems. It actually puts me to sleep. It yeah. works. Well, I could imagine. It's funny. Yeah. I had a bad history teacher growing up. And hearing history through your dad's eyes is a whole different story because the different culture, the different country, his experiences, and then the stories, it makes it come to life. And I like it much better. Mm -hmm. I'm learning a lot. I always learn a lot from him, too, especially his own stories about, Mm -hmm. you know, what story we should tell, Dad, is the story of Sasha, your friend in Moscow who I met. I think maybe it's time to to share that with with the listeners. So can you kind of walk us through who this man was when you were younger and how he got in touch with you? It's a long story. I I, I don't know if you want to go that far back. But um, uh, in order to explain the story, you need to know a little bit about the life in the Soviet Union and the communist society where uh, people are desegregated in the political the groups different based on ages. So when you get to be 14 until the age of the 28, from 14 to the 28, you become a member of Young the Communist League, which is called the Komsomol. And in theory, it's the, the volunteer organization. But you, if you're not a part of it, you cannot get in college, you cannot get a decent job back in the Soviet Union. So you become a member of the local cell, which, you know, elects its own, the secretary and you, the subject to the rule and the reporting like a chapter, like a chapter, local exactly. chapter, yeah. Exactly. So when you go to college, there is a chapter and they actually monitor you and every year they give you what they call the characteristic, the description of you and your value to the society. And based on that, it determines the stipend you're getting in college, the promotions at work, actually you're the future. So it's fairly the important. So when I graduated from college and I worked at one of the scientific research institutes in the Moscow, this guy was the the secretary of the the young the communist league for the whole organization. And when I applied for immigration, I became became the enemy of the people and I had to publicly be publicly excluded from what is supposed to be a volunteer organization. <laughs> so it was, you know, the public, the humiliation and it's a long story and he the presided over it. His name is Sasha. And Sasha. I mean, is this a dangerous situation? It could be. It could be because once you declare your intention to emigrate you become the enemy of the people. You basically lose all privileges. You can lose your, you know, once they kick you out of the Komsomol, you can lose your the job. Uh, it may create a lot of problems for you. I was relatively the fortunate. I was young. My The position was quite low <coughs> in the organization at the, at the time, and I didn't lose my job. They just they let me be. A few months that I had to wait for the for the 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 permission to the emigrate, which I didn't know when it come, if it comes, but 
is that the turnout it was not that far away. So just I had to wait only the six months. And did you like Sasha? Like, was he a friend of yours that then sort of turned on you? Like, explain sort of your relationship with him. He was, um, he was the co-worker, and he was a friend, relatively speaking. I worked closely with him. I had good feelings about him, and I felt he had decent attitude toward me. But he had to do what he had to do. This is, you know, he was the leader of the party organization in the institute, which had hundreds of engineers, hundreds of workers. And he was fairly high up. And the instructions were that the person who chose to apply for immigration decided to leave his home, the country, and move to the capitalist the society. Uh, that's the act of the betrayal. And a person is no longer the member of the communist the society and should be treated as such. The expulsion of the Komsomol was the uh, unpleasant process where I was present in a meeting and people were taking turns to tell me how terrible I was and how I uh, betrayed the mother the Russia and all, all that stuff. So he presided over that process. There have been threats, there have been the accusations. So it was unpleasant process, but I just kept my mouth shut and made it through. What were the threats? Well, the threats that you know, I would lose my my the status in society. I would lose my job. I would lose my um, place of the residence because back there in a the communist society, you cannot just go and rent an apartment. There's no apartments for rent. You you don't have a market for rents because people don't own anything that they live in. This is a society that people really don't understand how it operates. Even people who believe in socialism, in a society where People own nothing. You cannot own anything other than certain articles of personal property. Uh, you cannot own apartments. You cannot own houses. You cannot own businesses. You basically live in an apartment that's provided to you by the government based on certain rules. And you work at a place that's owned by the, by the government. Nobody owns anything which creates a very interesting type of environment. If people don't own anything, they don't care about what they do. There's no the incentive, really, for people to work hard. But it's another the conversation. So then what happened approximately 12 or 13 years ago when Sasha found you? It was, yeah, one day I just got email through the LinkedIn. Somehow he found me on the LinkedIn and sent me the email they asking if I was that the person who worked with him back, whatever, 35 years ago at that institute. And I replied to him, sure enough, you know, it's me. He, they asked me not to write him in English, which created problems for me. I could not find a keyboard here that types Russian the characters. So that was a pain in itself. Because Russian the characters, the Cyrillic alphabet is different from the Roman alphabet. There are some overlap in letters, but even the letters that you look the same, they sound differently in different languages. So it's, but I started to communicate with him and he right off the bat, he they, they apologized 
to me for what he did back then. And I didn't really had anything against him. I felt he was doing what was the expected of him. He didn't show any additional zeal in uh, the torturing me. Other people did who didn't have to do it. They really enjoyed the situation and took the pot shots at me. He didn't. So I didn't really hold, didn't hold the grudge against him. So we kept in touch. And then one day I found out that you were going to the Moscow. <laughs> and actually, so I let him know about it. And I asked him if, told him I would appreciate if he could meet you and maybe try to show you around the city that I didn't know any longer. It's been many years. So you happened to meet him and... <laughs> And he brought another friend, Sergey, who, because he said he didn't speak English, but Sergey spoke English. Sergey did yes. not speak English, it turns out. <laughs> yes. But you were just incredible. You found a way to communicate with them. You found a way to move around the city that is a very big city and difficult if you cannot read signs. No shit, Dad. The entire time I was cursing you for not, you know, <laughs> Teaching Russian, or at least, I mean, if I couldn't read, at least I could speak or something like that. But I couldn't read or speak, and no one speaks English. So it was a very challenging, you know. I don't know how you did it, but you found the places that I told you where I lived. And when you tried to photograph one of them, you were apprehended by a couple of people who thought that you were the spy. And and (laughs) instead of taking, you somehow talked them into taking picture of you. Instead of taking a picture, they took a video, pressed the wrong button, the wrong the button, and I could hear them speaking in Russian about you. What were they saying? They were saying that she is looking for her father. Yes. Yeah. So I, I told I was you trying to everybody. explain to them in very broken Russian, like the three words I knew, that my father used to live here. <laughs> and uh yeah that was a interesting interesting experience that whole trip to russia was really something else i was there for a un ministerial conference and it was just it was interesting to travel with people of different backgrounds and ethnicities and from different countries in a place like Russia, where everyone is very much the same sort of ethnic background, they definitely aren't used to seeing people that look different from them. And so that became very clear when you're traveling with people from Africa and Asia, um, and Latin America, and you know, I looked like them. And so Russians kept coming up to me and speaking to me in Russian the whole time. And I <laughs> just like, I would smile and nod or I just, you know, I didn't know how to respond. But Sasha was a lovely man. And it was great to be able to, yeah. to meet him. I didn't fully understand the whole story. I wasn't sure if he had been like unfaithful to you as a friend, or if he had put your life in danger. Because he, the first thing he said when he met me was he apologized for his treatment of you all those years mm-hmm. ago. And I was like, oh, I think my dad's okay with <laughs> No, no, no. It's, I, I mean, when you live in a society where you really do not have any rights and do not have any built-in the protections, there's nobody to run to the complain. They have no, the lawyers. I mean, whom are you going to sue? The government? So there's really no 
legal framework or any kind of free the press that you can turn to for the protection. You totally exposed. And if they declare you the enemy of the people, you are the victim waiting to be, you know, the attack. So it, it, it's a very vulnerable type situation, and I couldn't wait until I was able to get out of there. Right. But the yeah. picture from that the visit, my uh, you know the most impressive the picture is the picture of you with the Putin speaking in the background, and your eyes wide open, and your mouth wide open, and your whole face saying, "I'm not sure why I'm here, and I'm I'm not sure what I'm." supposed to do it was a beautiful picture i'll frame it <laughs> i should uh i should post it on on instagram or something it's it was really uh Especially shocking now well you were in the same room with the tyrant who is now you know putting the whole country to the fire the ukraine I know. It's so it was so wild of an experience. And I don't share a lot about my work background on the podcast. Um, You know, I I share a little but yeah, when I was really involved with the UN and uh, this like, large UN meeting on tuberculosis, I got invited to go to Moscow, where there was like all of the ministers of health got together to try and build a framework and get political will to invest the resources needed in getting people treatment and, you know, preventing tuberculosis. And Vladimir Putin was the head of state in Russia. And so he came to address that UN ministerial meeting. And it was a weird thing because I'm like, this guy is horrible. This was back in November 2017. I knew he was horrible because of all the things that have been reported about him, but because you told me he was horrible. And <laughs> and and uh, Sasha told me he was horrible. And and that's rare to get a Russian to talk openly about their feelings in, in that society. Especially now. And he now was very open. And he was just saying, you know, this is a horrible man. I didn't realize growing up all of the things that we had wrong, but we got a lot wrong. And, you know, I'm, I, I hope he's doing okay now. And, you know, I've heard that they've shut off like Facebook and Twitter and, you know, any form of outside media where you could hear a story different than what Russia State TV tells you. Right. Right. Oh, man. Terrible situation. I know. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this. I'm going to have to record you at some point where I ask you about your immigration story and how you got refugee status and living in Italy for a while and then being able to come to the United States. But I guess, could you tell everyone, I have a lot of listeners from overseas too, about I think like one in five of my listeners is outside the US. Um, What was your biggest shock coming to the United States? I would say the people. I, I, I usually that's not what other the immigrants say, but I found a big difference, profound difference in people. Um, usually, it's common to hear that everywhere you have good people and bad people. Every society has, you know, the good and bad, and it's true. But I found that people were different. They were friendly. They were more open. They were more ethical. 
and uh, it was just a pleasure, pleasure to be there. This country was everything I thought it would be, plus a lot more, with all the problems. Given that we have all the problems that we, you know, we know about and we're not arguing about, it's still the greatest, the greatest place I think on earth. But you felt people were really welcoming to you, even though you were there during the height of like the Cold War. So you came in 79. So like, what Mm. were the 80s like being someone with a Russian accent, where our country was up against Russia? There was a lot of interest because almost right after I came, the Russians invaded the Afghanistan and we had the Olympic, the boycott under Carter, grain the embargo and all types of all types of problems so it was difficult time but i didn't feel in any way the impacted by that i was just enjoying the life here it was like new life for a young the person and i was back then relatively young it was the most important was the the opportunities you can do pretty much what you want here nobody is going to prevent you from following your the dreams. Yeah, like you could apply for a job, you could apply for any job. Maybe you don't get it, but you could apply for it. Right. Whereas, right. you know, it sounds like you were just given a profession back in the Soviet Union. Well, I mean, you can get into college if you the right type and you meet requirements and and then when you graduate from college in Russia back in those days in communist society, you do not choose the place of employment. They choose you. Mm-hmm. Because the college education is free, just like a lot of people wanted to be free. It was free. In the Soviet Union, nobody paid for college. Instead, they paid you. I got it, the, the stipend. But... In return, once you graduate, you have to work for three years in a place that they will send you to. So it goes, it works both ways. And they can send you to a very far and very cold, the place that you don't want to be at. But you have to do it. Because in theory, they paid for your for your the education. <sighs> so... I guess in closing, <laughs> you see we've kind of covered a lot of ground. And last time I asked you to give people advice that were kind of feeling down on their luck and not sure if they were going to find love and how you were able to find love at 64, 65, you know, years old. This time I'm wondering, just in general, I think people are feeling it's been a long two years with the pandemic. A lot of people are really down. People have lost out in a lot of social connections that they've had and are just questioning the future. And it seems like things can be really grim. You tend to be like for someone who can be quite pessimistic and always planning for the future, you are an internal optimist. And I'm wondering what advice you can give to people as someone who's lived through tough times before. I guess the only advice I can give is not to give up. When everything looks bad, it will get the better. It always does. So just wait, just give it time, keep working, keep the plugging along, keep the faith. It will get better. And that's the only advice I can give. And I would add that I think his magic 
is being totally honest as a Norwegian <laughs> conservative <laughs> introvert that took some adjusting to for me because not everything is just said out loud and out there. But at the same time, when we were dating, right from the first sentence, I knew this was a person who was just going to tell me his truth. And that's my advice to people. Don't play around with any games or try and make yourself look different or better than who you are. Be yourself, be genuine, be honest because you're going to be in a relationship with this person for a long time, the more transparent and open and honest you can be, the better shot you have of finding a good friend, finding somebody who has your back, I guess is how I would say it. Is, is yeah. there ever a time where he's too honest? <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> I think that's true. I think sometimes I have to adjust to it a little bit, but then I remember that the honesty is for my growth or is just out of love and it works no Mandy you are pretty much the same you way. know it I am very mm -hmm. honest yes you no, don't I know. hide things I have you, very whatever you think it's on my face know. I can't even pr pretend mm -hmm. right. and he's been very honest with you a few conversations I've listened to so oh yes <laughs> it helps us in some way there's no really hidden the agendas we express things. I think it's cultural between us. Yeah. But, you know, when I deal with the Jewish and her family, uh, the the Scandinavian, the culture is more subtle, less open. People keep things inside and do proper things. And it's just a different way. Uh, but it works. And you're finding kind way. ways to tell the truth. I'm becoming a little bit more Scandinavian in my ways. <laughs> and she's becoming a little bit more the Russian Jew. That's right. <laughs> oh, the best of both worlds, right? So we're changing each other. Yes. Yeah, it's good. I love that. Well, thank you guys so much for joining. And I'm sure people will enjoy hearing from you. Thank you, Mandy. Best to everybody. Mm -hmm.